You seek the key, but first you must learn the ways of precision, craft, and performance with Acura's all-electric ZDX. With a premium Bang & Olufsen sound system, up to a 313-mile range and a Type S variant, with an estimated 500 horsepower, the ZDX is their most powerful SUV yet. Unlock the energy when you visit Acura.com to order yours today. Okay, let's do some quick math. The less your business spends on operations, on multiple systems, on delivering your product or service, the more margin you have and the more money you keep. That's obvious. But with higher expenses on materials, employees, distribution, and borrowing, everything costs more. To reduce costs and headaches, smart businesses are graduating to NetSuite by Oracle. Here's the thing. Information is power. Information is money. Literally, the currency of today's world of, of entrepreneurship is information. And if you could bring all of the, your, the information about your business into one dashboard, this is incredibly valuable. NetSuite is the number one cloud financial system, bringing accounting, financial management, inventory, HR into one platform and one source of the truth about your business. With NetSuite, you reduce IT costs because NetSuite lives in the cloud with no hardware required, access from anywhere. You cut the cost of maintaining multiple systems because you've got one unified business management suite. And you're improving efficiency by bringing all of your major business processes into one platform, slashing manual tasks and errors. This is so valuable. You just hit a button and you can see all the information about your business instead of having to like call five different departments and get all these emails and put it all together and make sense of it. Over 37,000 companies have already made the move. So do the math. See how you'll profit with NetSuite. Backed by popular demand, NetSuite has extended its one-of-a-kind flexible financing program for a few more weeks. Head to netsuite.com slash james. netsuite.com slash james. netsuite.com slash james. Wouldn't you just love to win every argument? Like whether it's my kids, business partners, people on social media who are always so annoying when they argue or just debates that you might be in. Everybody thinks they're good at arguing. Everyone thinks they know their facts. Everyone thinks they know how to persuade. But I find that very few people actually know how to do it. There are very specific skills for the art of arguing and persuading and public speaking. So Mehdi Hassan, many of you might know him. He, he hosts the Mehdi Hassan show on MSNBC. He's a big time news guy, TV news guy. He wrote a book called Win Every Argument, The Art of Debating, Persuading, and Public Speaking. And we do a little bit of everything on this podcast. We ourselves kind of debate and argue, but we also talk about the skills required you need to know if you want to win arguments. It was a great conversation. I would love to have him on again to talk politics in general. I'm not sure we agree on everything. It'd be fun to have a good, fair conversation like that. So again, win every argument with Mehdi Hassan. This isn't your average business podcast, and he's not your average host. This is the James Altucher Show. Mehdi Hassan, welcome to the show. You wrote a book, Win Every Argument. This is like the Bible of persuading and public speaking and winning arguments. So win every argument, the art of debating, persuading, and public speaking by Mehdi Hassan. And Mehdi, you're a well-known figure. You're an anchor on MSNBC. What's the worst part of your job? The worst part of my job is that I get love from lots of people and I get hate from lots of people. So you got to take the good with the bad, the bad with the good. Now, do you ever feel like you get hate irrationally because not because of what you stand for, but because the people might not really understand what you stand for. They just lump you in with everybody else. hundred percent. I mean, we live in an age where people don't click on articles. They just read headlines. Don't People don't watch TV shows. They just kind of get a vibe for what a TV show or a channel is. On this book tour that I've been doing, one of the common questions I get is, 
oh, you know, you're written a book about argument. Of course, cable news is all shout fest. And I'm like, have you watched cable news? Have you watched my show? I mean, people, we, you know, we, we trade in, we're lazy. And I include myself here. All of us are lazy. We trade in stereotypes and vibes and first impressions, last impressions. Uh, we don't do any kind of digging. And therefore, yeah, we kind of, we jump to conclusions. We judge books by covers. We play identity politics, all of us across the board. Uh, and it's hard. It's really hard work to cut through all that noise. Yeah, and I feel like, and look, I want to get to your book, but this is kind of setting the framework yeah. for it. I, I, I want everybody to learn how to win every argument. And I read through the book and you really have some great advice in there. And it's really specific, winning every argument, public speaking, winning over an audience and so on. And it's useful stuff in negotiation and all these great things. But you're in a very particular kind of career and life situation where, I, I correct me if I'm wrong, I felt like, particularly during this pandemic or maybe during the entire Trump years, everybody was either reading off of a red menu or a blue menu. So if you liked, and yeah. by the way, not you, but if you liked one item on the red menu, you had to like every item on the red menu. Yeah. And if you liked one item on the blue, like if you, if you thought hydroxychloroquine was a joke, then you also were pro-choice, you know, by amazing coincidence. And you were also yeah. uh, worried about climate change and what your pronouns were. Like all these things were like lumped in together. And if you didn't believe all of it, then people would say silence is violence. And and true for the opposite side too. If 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 you weren't like, if you were just slightly, you know, right of center, you were like a lefty for the, you know, extreme Republicans. Yeah. And, you know, I think you've differed on some issues compared to many Democrats and we can get to that. But do you feel that was largely true? And how did you do, like, given that you're you're at the forefront of the, the banner leading channel for, for the, the blue menu, how did you deal with this? So I'm going to agree with you and disagree with you at the same time. I'm going to agree with you that we live in a very partisan polarized age. Anyone who says otherwise is kind of on cloud cuckoo land, isn't paying attention. And you're right, there is this sense and plenty of uh, studies have been done, like actual peer reviewed studies have been done suggesting what you said is true, that people basically line up uh, all of their views behind whichever team, uh, group, tribe that they're part of. And we, you know, the classic example of that was when Trump took over the Republican Party. You had Republicans who used to be pro-free trade and anti-Russia overnight become anti-free trade and pro-Russia, not because their views changed, but because their leader took a different position and they followed the leader. And that is the case uh, very often in politics. Leaders play a much bigger role than we want to give credit to. They can actually change public opinion and lead people in certain directions. So I'd agree with you on that. There is this kind of annoying tendency that you have to sign up for everything on the menu, as you, as you eloquently put it. Uh, one area I'd slightly push back on is I don't think it's an equal thing. I don't think it's both sides. Like both sides do it equally. If you're this, then that. If you're no, I think we live in an age where one group of people are particularly cultish, are particularly deferential to the dear leader, and are particularly kind of uh, allergic, shall we say, uh, to evidence and evidence-based argument. Uh, and we know what that we know which group that is, and we know what side of the political spectrum that's on. Now, that's not to say that there's a general problem across the board of polarization and tribalism. There is. But let's not pretend that one group is not more susceptible. All of the data, all of our experiences, all of what we've seen with our own eyes in recent years tells us that's the case. And so, so where was an issue where you, for instance, and I and you mentioned this in your book, but where, where was an issue that where you, for instance, might not have agreed with some of the other people who were either listening or part of MSNBC or part of the, the blue uh, contingent, however you want to describe it? I mean, I take a position which is, uh, you could, if you want to call it, to the left of others, which is, I think, for example, that we should be reducing funding to police departments and we shouldn't be funding police violence. I think we should be talking much more about that and making the case for that. Most people uh, in the Democratic Party, most of my colleagues on air, I don't hear them make that case, each to their own. I respect everyone's arguments. But that's something I definitely, from a kind of quote unquote, to the left of, of the team, uh, definitely take that position. Um, I think on a, uh, you know, uh, my positions on foreign policy, for example, I've been very critical of the Biden administration on a bunch of foreign policy issues. And then interestingly, on the one issue that the media bashed Biden on, uh, including members of his own party, which was ending the war in Afghanistan, I was 100% behind Joe Biden on primetime and MSNBC, while everyone else said, this is a disaster. I was like, no, it's not. So, you know, it's difficult. Um, and you get any time you get, you know, 
if you do, you know, we live in a social media age where if you do pick an argument with people who supposedly are on the same side as, people don't like that. People are thin-skinned. I, I often find in my own interviews, I talk about this in the book yeah, in passing, but some of the people I've interviewed who I've had really bad experiences with after the interview are over uh, tend to be, quote, unquote, people on my own side because maybe they expect they're going to get a softball or they expect they're going right. to get a friendlier interviewer. And actually, it's the right-wingers, it's the conservatives, it's the Trump supporters, it's the, I don't know, members of the Israeli government who actually kind of come away fine because they came expecting a row, enjoyed the row, and had the row. Let me ask you advice. Like On this podcast, I try very hard to be neutral because I want Democrats, Republicans, Libertarians, left, right, whatever, to be guests on this show. I want to hear all, all sides. And sometimes that's hard because if you're not one side or the other, or if you, at least if you don't appear to be one side or the other, you're accused of automatically being the other side. This is this whole yeah. idea that silence is violence. Like if you're neutral, then you're against whatever the person you're talking to believes in. And I've, I've encountered that quite a bit. And do you think it's possible to be somewhat neutral in, in today's day? So I'm not a fan of the word neutral, James. I think it's a very loaded term. Uh, I think most people who say they are neutral uh, have a very different definition of neutral than a lot of people listening to the word. Like, what does it mean to be neutral? Clearly, you're yeah. not actually neutral. You have views, beliefs, positions, emotions, instincts, likes, dislikes. The fact that yeah, you're not choosing the the fact that you're not choosing to share them on the show, you're keeping them to yourself and saying, look, I'm going to let the guests speak. And I prefer the word fairness. I just think it's a simpler word. On my show, I'm not neutral. I don't pretend to be neutral on my show. Anyone who's watched my show, it's an opinion show. I make my opinions very clear. But I would argue I'm fair. I don't misrepresent the other side. or I try not to. I'm sure people will say I do, but I try not to. My intent is not to misrepresent people. My intent is not to straw man. I talk in the book about the importance of steel, steel manning. Uh, your opponent's yeah. arguments. We're doing a show on the lab leak debate this week, and we're making very sure that we're going after the strongest arguments on that side, looking at what the strongest evidence is. So I think fairness is a better word as a host of a show. When I host a debate, for example, between two people on my show, which I do often, sometimes I support. I'm clearly on one side of the debate, but as a moderator, I'm trying to be fair. I want to give both people equal chance to speak. I want to give both people equal chance to respond. I don't want to uh, put my finger on the scale from the start of the debate. So I think fairness is a better word. Neutral implies that you are some empty vessel uh, that takes no position on anything. And none of us are like that, of course. We're all very emotional, very political creatures. One last thing I'd say on the word neutral, you know, Desmond Tutu had a line uh, during apartheid, which is in situations of injustice. If you are neutral, you are taking the side of the oppressor. That was his position uh, to come back to your point about people attacking you if you say you don't get your position. So what are you neutral on? Are you neutral between the Democratic Party and the Republican Party? Fine. Completely good with that. Many people are. But are you neutral on whether democracy should continue to exist in America? I don't think you should be neutral on that. So I think you've got to be careful about, A, what terms you're using, what you mean by neutrality, and what are you applying it to? Political parties? Fine. The idea of freedom and democracy, I'm not so fine with. That's a really good point. You're right. Like, obviously, or maybe not so obvious, I'm definitely in favor of freedom and democracy, but I am completely apolitical as far as party. Like, I, I sincerely do not like any presidential. Millions party. of Americans are. So, um, you know, I would say, I would say, like, like, take this lab leak theory that's been making the rounds lately. Like, it's, it's, there's a little bit more evidence now, and I don't really know what all the evidence is, but there is a little bit more evidence apparently that instead of this just spontaneously appearing in some wet market that happened to be across the street from the main laboratory in China that was researching SARS viruses, that in fact, what everybody thought in the beginning might be true, that it leaked perhaps accidentally from the lab. Uh, and, uh, you know, again, a lot of people were arguing strenuously in 2020 that it wasn't a leak. Like I had epidemiologists on the podcast yeah. that studied the virus scientifically and said, there's no way that it's a leak. And then I had people on who said it most certainly was a leak. But now that it's becoming more clear, there's more receipts as you put it in the book, there's more evidence. Well, uh, what do you think is happening? I'm going to push back a little bit. I know that's the conventional wisdom right now. And I, and I, I don't want to preempt the show that we're doing on the show this week. I urge your listeners after they've listened to this podcast, by the time this comes out, maybe the show will be out. But uh, have, a, have a watch of the Mehdi Hassan show at some point this week where I'm going to address this at length. But let me just say briefly, when you said there's more receipts, there's more evidence, there actually isn't. What there is, is the Wall Street Journal got hold of the Department of Energy's intelligence forecast 
on the lab leak and the Department of Intelligence uh, Energy, sorry, the Department of Energy's intelligence wing is one of eight intelligence agencies that was tasked at investigating by Biden in 2021, whether this was from the wet market, from a lab, what's the origins of COVID. And of the eight intelligence agencies, two have not made up their mind, including the CIA. Four have made up their mind and said it was zoonotic. It was the original explanation. It came out from a wet market. It was natural spillover from animals to humans. And two, the FBI, with moderate confidence, and the Department of Energy, with low confidence, are saying, we think it, it spilled from a lab. But it wasn't a bioweapon. It was still natural. It just came out of a lab somehow, maybe a security breach, maybe an accident, mishandling. Um, what's interesting is the Department of Energy have not released the underlying evidence. Or if they have, the Wall Street Journal didn't share it with us. So when you say we have a little bit more evidence, actually, we don't. All we have is the say of an intelligence agency, which I'm fine with, but you've got to weigh it with all the other intelligence agencies. And I'm not a master mathematician, but four is a higher number than two. Four intelligence agencies still say zoonotic, two say lab leak. And what's really funny is that the people pushing the lab leak the most, let's be honest, James, are people on the right. To go back to your earlier question, if you're lab leak, you're probably red. If you're natural, you're probably blue, just to put it crudely. And the people who are saying lab leak who are red are also the same people who say the FBI should be shut down and there's a deep state who you can't trust. But hold on, we trust them now because they're confirming our priors. See, but this is interesting to me because, okay, I didn't know all the background on this lab leak theory and, and which department says what. But I remember back in March 2020, with before maybe maybe it was like seconds before the, the, the red and blue hit the yes. COVID virus on, in every yes. aspect. It seemed to me kind of a, a reasonable possibility that, hey, if I was running that lab in Wuhan, I'm careless enough, I'd probably leak the virus. Like it seemed like a possibility to me. And it's still a possibility ignore. and no one's yeah. ruling it out. I think the point is the overwhelming evidence, and I'm not a scientist, you're not a scientist, the overwhelming evidence from the people who've investigated this stuff, for example, the science journalists, the Science Journal put out two big studies last summer, is that the preponderance of evidence that we do have, and there's no smoking gun, uh, suggests it was natural spillover from a market. I mean, my point is this. I'm doing a whole show on it because I find the argument fascinating. But I do think it's kind of ridiculous how much energy we put into this, given that a million Americans are dead, our vaccination rates are ludicrously low, we still haven't figured out how to filter, you know, clean the air, air filtration. We haven't figured out how to give everyone health care in this country. Uh, or pay for vaccines after they stop being free for people with no insurance. Like of all the things to focus on in the middle of a pandemic, which is still not resolved, we have long COVID, which scientists have no clue how to treat, which the government doesn't even talk about. We're obsessed with whether it came out, out of a lab or out of a market. In both cases, it's still natural. No one is suggesting a bioweapon, as some were suggesting at the start. So I kind of find the whole argument a very political argument and not really a scientific argument. And let's not pretend it's not an anti-China argument. It is an anti-China argument. And I, I'm a great critic of China and its human rights abuses, but let's not pretend that's not what's politically driving a lot of this on the right. Come on. By the way, I, I agree with you. This is one of those things that I would normally just be neutral on, like not have an opinion. <laughs> I'm neutral. You don't really need an opinion on everything in life in order to be happy. Or 100%. Order to be well said. Well said. Like I could be informed without necessarily knowing the exact Department of Energy evidence about the leak or the CIA's evidence of not or, or yeah, whatever. If, if a smoking gun comes out tomorrow saying it's definitely a lab leak, I'll say, whoa, well, I was wrong to listen to the scientists who said it wasn't, and I will move on with my life. Right, but 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 like you said, though the the real problem is like me saying that it might be a possibility. Suddenly, some people might say, "Oh, this this guy's ma he's a MAGA, you know, this that the other thing." He probably but, but that's because into his so, veins. so I got I got a lot of shit for this, James, because I tweeted a tweet that got madly ratioed last week on this subject when Nate Silver, who you know the the the, the data yeah. guy, the polling guy, who tends to do very little data these days, just runs his mouth a bit like the rest of us. He put out things saying, well, you know, this was all shut down and, you know, basically saying, you know, free speech was silenced and all this nonsense about the lab. And I said, look, the problem is that it, from a very early on, it was conflated with bioweapons. It was conflated with China's to blame. It was a deflection from Trump's mishandling of the pandemic. That is undeniably true. And I'm going to bring receipts on my show later this week for that. And I said, look, blame the conspiracy theorists for wrecking it for the rest of us. And people piled it, oh, you're a journalist. You've just admitted that you self-censored. It's your job to find the truth. And that's not how the world works. I write in the book, 
you know, we can live in this abstract kind of university high school debate form of life. One of the reasons I don't like high school debating in this country, my daughter's a high school debater. And I say my book is not really for competitions. Like my book is for the real world. It's for the arguments that we actually have, the emotions that we actually feel, the people that we actually have to deal with. And then the real world, James, you know, I'm hosting a show in March of 2020. And you say to me, you know, you should look into that lab leak possibility. And I say, okay, who should I have on to talk about it? Because the people at the time we're talking about it are Senator Tom Cotton, a mad China hawk, Steve Bannon, a mad Trump defender, and some other fringe figures. Now, you tell me if you can get me someone credible, I'll talk to them. My problem is there weren't credible people at the time. Now there are. Now there are some respected scientists that say, you know what, it could have come out of love. And I have them on my show. I did in 2021. I did a debate on the lab leak. So I didn't try and shut it down. But look, we have to live in the real world. Bad faith actors do ruin arguments. I said, let me give my analogy is this. I'm a Muslim. For 20 years, I was told Islam has a problem with extremism. Muslims need to condemn terrorism. There's a problem within your community. And as a Muslim journalist, I felt that heavily because I was in the public eye having these debates about ISIS, Al-Qaeda, national security, civil liberties. One thing I tried to explain at the time was I would love to have a discussion about the undeniable problem of extremism within Muslim communities because there's an undeniable problem. Thing is, every time I try and have that discussion, it gets hijacked by who? Islamophobes who say, all Muslims are terrorists. Islam's an evil religion. So now I'm thinking, well, I'm not going to have that discussion. And I literally self-censored. And I would say the blame for that is the Islamophobes. You would say, maybe you shouldn't have self-censored. No, I have to live in the real world. If everything I'm saying is being weaponized by bad faith actors, bigots, Islamophobes in that case, or crazy conspiracy theorists in the case of COVID, that is going to affect the nature of the argument we have. Anyone who says otherwise is living in cloud cuckoo land. They're not living in the real world. No, I, I agree. Like there's a lot of, there's a lot of uh, minds. It's, it's a minefield when you have conversations with people now, particularly if you don't know which side of the fence they lie on. Because like you say, most people are on one side of the fence or the other. Now, you know, which is interesting, like your book kind of seeks to outline how people can find the middle ground between themselves so that they can at least express themselves and have other people listen, even if those people are on the other side of things. And, and you mentioned one idea, which is steel manning, this concept, well, I'll let you explain it, but, and then this other thing that, which I find very compelling in your book and a lot of books about persuasion neglect this is the, the, the idea of using story, real story to present your ideas. I find people don't do that, whether they're writers, it's too yeah. easy to write a book now. So whether they're writers or TED talkers or whatever, people forget that stories are the way yeah. to transmit ideas ultimately. And you know, and then and then you describe all the uh, you know everything else about arguing. You really get into into detail, but those two things are extremely important. Maybe you could describe steel manning. So I'll start with storytelling. I get to steel manning because you just mentioned how important it is. There's nothing more important than storytelling, uh, and I try and do this in the book itself. I structure the book around stories. I try and open each chapter with a story from history, from ancient Greece, or U.S. presidential debate, or from my own life and career. Because that is how you bring people in. That is how you hook people. That is how you get people listening. And the science behind it is so solid. I quote from uh, Yuri Hassan, no relation at Princeton's fMRI scans, which show that when somebody tells a story, the listener and the storyteller's brains actually sync up. He calls it brain-to-brain -brain coupling. The same kind of emotional regions in the brain go off. It's such a powerful way of persuading people, connecting with people, keeping people's attention. And one of the reasons I think liberals, progressives, leftists lose so many arguments is because they turn up just with a sheaf of papers, stats, studies, peer-reviewed uh, you know, journals, and it's like the other person's just telling a great story. And a lot of academics in particular who gonna, you know, are in the you know, metaphorical ivory towers, when they come on TV, I've had them on my shows, and they're just not persuasive. Even though, even though they've got the facts, they're on the right side. Their argument is the most persuasive on paper. But when it comes to making it, how do you do it? How do you get it across? And you know, there's, I, I quote a statistic in the book that you know, a story is 22 times more memorable than a fact. Uh, and you wouldn't believe that given the shortage of stories, especially on the progressive side. Um, and just coming back to your point about steel manning. So we all know straw manning, right? And I mentioned earlier, I try not to straw man people, although I'm sure some people say I do. Straw man is you, you create the weakest, most inaccurate version of your opponent's argument in order to knock it down quickly. So you're not taking a strong version of it. You're almost misrepresenting uh, your adversary's argument in the dumbest possible way and then say, ha, 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 what a ridiculous argument. I can knock it down like that. So, That's so, the straw so, man. Give me an example. Straw, straw man me. <laughs> uh, straw man you based on what? Based on what you've said today or just in general? Uh, well, let's say, let's say, I don't know, 
I, I think there might have been a lab leak. Let's say I, I stand oh, um, James, towards that. James has this ridiculous unscientific view that the Chinese government created a virus in a lab in order to destroy the rest of the world. They created this huge bioweapon in secret, like a Batman villain. That's James's argument. What a, isn't that a ridiculous argument? There's zero evidence for it. That, I would say, is a straw man, because that's not your I position. See. Your position is that there is plausible evidence that a virus, maybe it was being worked on, escaped the lab, right? That is the better version of the thesis. Now, how would you steel man that argument? Now, let me give you an example. Steel manning is what I say we should do. I, we should do it for multiple reasons. Number one, the moral reason. It's the honest thing to do. Present the strongest version of your opponent's argument in order to take it down. That leads you to your second point, which is it's not just moral, it's actually strategic. It makes you a better arguer. Because if you don't know the other side of the case, if you don't know the... John Stuart Mill has a line, right, from Liberty. You can only know your own side of the argument if you know the other side of the argument and the most plausible version, he says, of the other side of the argument. Otherwise, you don't really know your argument. You're not a good debater. And I think that, for me, is something I've held since I was a kid. The reason why so many people lose arguments is because we turn up and we think, I've got all the best arguments. I'm going to win. There's a kind of weird superiority and inferiority complex at the same time. And there's a lot of confirmation bias. Well, I've read all the stuff, but you've only read stuff you agreed with. And that's the problem. And that's where you end up losing. I'm saying steel man the argument. It's in your own interest to do so. It's both honest for your opponent. They'll appreciate you. And it's good for yourself because then you'll be ready for anything that comes up because you'll say, aha, okay, he's actually going to say, not that there's a Chinese bioweapon. He's going to say, have you seen the book by Alina Chan and Matt Ridley that makes a very strong argument for why the Wuhan Institute of Virology uh, was working on a precursor to COVID and that's what accidentally leaked out and made several scientists ill. If I'm familiar with that book, then I'm going to be a better job of rebutting the arguments in it. By the way, very quickly, just for your listeners, very quickly, the DOE, Intelligence Analysis, apparently, according to CNN reporting, refers to the CDC, the Chinese CDC lab in Wuhan. Not the WIV, not the Wuhan Institute of Virology. So when you said at the start of the show, does this mean people in March 2020 were right? No, because they were talking about the WIV. This is a whole separate lab which doesn't even do gain-of-function research. So even if the DOE is right, it still doesn't vindicate the lab leakers. But that's an argument for another day. Back to steel manning. Do steel manning. We're just using this as an example. Like, exactly. I don't even care if it leaked or not. I'm, I'm sending my kids to Wuhan University, to Wuhan University Medical School. It's highly acclaimed. I'm sending all my kids there. I mean, so. So yeah, so steel, steel manning is a good faith, self-interested, honest way of preparing for a debate. I wish we all did more of it. I have to say, Airbnb has changed my life. I just love staying in Airbnbs. Like in about a month, I'm going to Cocoa Beach, which is right next to Cape Canaveral. I'm going to watch some rocket launches. I'm going to, of course, be staying in a very nice Airbnb on the beach. And it's just such a great experience. Like the whole world is available to us now because of Airbnb. But whenever I'm at an Airbnb, I always realize, you know, I the home that I left to come to this Airbnb I could be making money on that right now by hosting and, and being an Airbnb myself. So, and I've known people, I had a friend who basically, you know, made a living from turning his home into an Airbnb. So if you have a home, but you're not always at home, you do have an Airbnb there and it's an e it can easily fit into your lifestyle and it's a great way to earn some money. Your home might be worth more than you think. Find out how much at airbnb.com slash host. I remember last year I was asked to go speak at the Norway Business Summit, and I was so excited because side by side with the Business Summit was the Norway Chess Summit, where I would get to see in person Magnus Carlsen, the best chess player ever, playing chess. But... It was four plane rides, like to get to the city that ultimately I would go to. So I really did not want to fly for 14 hours. And they, they were willing to pay for everything for me. So I, I, at first class. So I didn't want to fly for 14 hours and not be first class. So I had to 
hurry up and get on the phone immediately to get those first-class tickets to a chess tournament in Norway. And listen, this is just like when, you know, you have to know when you want the best of anything, you have to act quickly or someone else will get it instead. And I did not want those seats to fill up. So it's like if you're hiring for your business, you want to find the most talented people for your open roles before the competition scoops them up. I just was talking to a friend this morning where he was trying to decide between some programmers and he waited a little too long and both the programmers he was interviewing took other jobs, like great jobs. So, you know, what's the best way then to hire the best as quickly as possible? ZipRecruiter. ZipRecruiter finds qualified candidates fast. And right now you can try it for free at ZipRecruiter.com slash James. Just try it and see. You'll, you'll find out. So ZipRecruiter's powerful matching technology takes center stage to identify the top talent for your roles. Immediately after you post your job, ZipRecruiter's smart technology starts showing you qualified people for it. And I know this because one time I signed up as an employee, potential employee on ZipRecruiter, and I got nonstop really, I was, even though obviously I wasn't looking for a job, I love what I do, but I just wanted to see what would happen because they were a, a, a sponsor of my podcast. And the most interesting jobs would pop up in my emails like, hey, you're qualified for this or that. And so it's interesting to see. So just just go there and try it. Try ZipRecruiter.com slash James. Amp up your hiring performance. Now, this is more for if you're hiring, but amp up your hiring performance with ZipRecruiter and find the best fast. See why four out of five employers who post on ZipRecruiter get a quality candidate within the first day. Just go to this exclusive web address right now to try ZipRecruiter for free. ZipRecruiter.com slash James. Again, that's ZipRecruiter.com slash James. ZipRecruiter, the smartest way to hire. I had one debate a few years ago in 2020 where, again, for some of the reasons I described earlier, I chose not to vote for, for a lot of reasons. And people on both sides were really, really upset at me. Like the whole thing, people died for your right to vote. And this is the most important election ever in history. And my kids might die if you don't vote. <laughs> like I was getting everything. And nobody really, the steel manning is such a valuable skill and nobody was really doing it. I was trying to, during this debate, I was trying to educate the other side how to debate me by arguing their case for them, because it's very important. Well, out of interest, James, what was your central number one top argument for not voting in 2020? I feel I am not an opinion journalist. I really do, like you, believe in fairness. I want to be able to equally represent both sides on this podcast, have Democrats on, Republicans on, extremists on, on either side. And I feel voting would bias me somewhat against that. But that's a, it's a secret vote. You don't have to tell anyone how you vote. No, but I feel like it'll bias myself if I, I know how I vote. But you, hold on, hold on, James. Even if you don't go into a ballot box and put a cross on a paper, you in your head know who you preferred, unless you didn't go through the exercise. I didn't like anybody. And, and I don't like voting for the lesser of two evils. I mean, a lot of people didn't like anyone, but it's called the lesser of two evils for a reason. Yeah, no, I, I agree. But I, I don't like... I figured, okay, I can have more of a voice with my podcast than I can casting one vote among 100 civilians, even particularly so since I'm apathetic about who wins. Like, I really thought both sides, I'm not saying they were no good. It just didn't mean anything to me. Like, they, they both were playing their own political agendas, and I disagree with both agendas. And so I didn't, I didn't vote. Disappointed. <laughs> That's my disappointed voice, James. <laughs> well, okay. Do you find it hard to be neutral? You clearly have, like you said, opinions and, and feelings about different things. What's an issue for you that you have a hard time steel manning? Because there must be some issues where you really cannot express the other side as well as the other side can. That's a good question. I would say, well, let, let me just take the most obvious one of all since he's running again. Let's take Donald Trump, someone who has taken over my life, my sleep, my schedule, my work, uh, everything. You know, I, I, wish, I wish I could get him out of my head and life. Uh, people say you're obsessed with Donald Trump. Yeah, you think I want to be, but you know that's where we are. Uh, let's take Trump as a good example. The man's running for president for a third time, right, for 2024. 
you mentioned 2020. In 2016, as much as I thought he's a joke candidate, he'll be hugely harmful for America. I kind of got why some people voted for him. I understood it. I could make the argument if you wanted me to. I, you know, I could do the you know, devil's advocate and say, this is why you should vote for Donald Trump, because Hillary Clinton, blah, 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 about the Clintons, because left behind working class voters want to burn the thing down and he'll help them burn it down and maybe it should be burned down. It's, he'll give the country a shock. You know, there was a lot, there was a lot of that. And I, I got it. You know, he's an unknown quantity. Give him a chance. You can make all those cases. I mean, I'm not saying I would make, but I could get it. I, there was an argument that could be made if you put a gun to my head. In 2020, if you told me to be devil's advocate, make the case for Donald Trump against Joe Biden, I'd say no. If you put a gun to my head, I'd say pull the freaking trigger because I can't do it. I can't, not just morally can't do it, intellectually. I don't understand after four years of watching this man in office, how anyone with a straight face, in good faith, with a sane mind can say yes, re-elect him for another four years. I couldn't do it. I can't see any, I couldn't see any good argument at the time. I haven't seen any good argument since. I've never seen anyone make a good case. And I say that as someone who, who gets the case for whatever it is, Mitt Romney, even George W. Bush in 2000. But Trump in 2020? No. You know, it's interesting you bring up Mitt Romney because I feel like 2012 was a very respectful election. Like Mitt Romney and Barack Obama obviously believed in different things, but it seems like they had good, deep respect for each other. And it wasn't, it didn't smash the country apart. Like the, the, the differences were, were somewhat nuanced. They were both very smart people. And you can appreciate that in their debates that they were, they were both smart people. I didn't vote then either because I didn't really have an opinion. Well, I wasn't American then, so I didn't vote either. <laughs> well, now things are, are so far apart. Like, for instance, okay, I could see good things and bad things Biden's done. I could see, okay, like, for instance, putting tariffs on China that, that Trump thought were a little more fair, whether he was right or wrong, that seems like it's coming from a, a good spot that many, many people, both right and left, have thought about over the years. Yeah, you can make an economic case for tariffs or not tariffs. Bernie Sanders would do that. But of course, again, you can't take stuff in isolation. You have to put that in the context of Trump's entire economic policy, entire approach to China, entire approach to the world. I mean, I'm not going to discuss Chinese tariffs without also saying this is a guy who went on tour to rallies shouting Kung Flu, Kung Flu uh, at the height of the pandemic, who now calls Mitch McConnell's wife Coco Chow, just brazen, open, anti-Chinese racism, completely inexcusable, unforgivable. To go back to your point about Romney and Obama, a lot of conservatives, it's become fashionable among some kind of center-right conservatives say, it's liberals' fault that we got Trump because even Romney was called an extremist and Romney was such a good guy in hindsight. Well, hindsight's great. That's the whole point. Like now Romney looks good. Romney himself has stood up to Trump belatedly. Good for him. But what's interesting is you say, that didn't tear the country apart and look at us now. And I'm going to, again, slightly push back on the kind of implied both sidesness to your question, which is Joe Biden, let's compare Joe Biden to Barack Obama. Joe Biden is slightly, surprisingly, I never thought he would be, but slightly to the left of Barack Obama. I think that's very clear. He's slightly to the left of on foreign policy. He ended the Afghan war. Barack Obama didn't. Uh, he's put more money into the economy in terms of kind of investment spending, stimulus spending that Barack Obama was able to get away with or tried to do on immigration. You know, there's a variety of issues where happily, for someone like me, he's slightly to the left of Obama. Not hugely. He's not Bernie or Warren, but he's to the left of Obama, slightly. Then you go, okay, let's compare Donald J. Trump to Mitt Romney, slightly to the right here. They're in different planets. They really shouldn't even be in the same political party. Mitt Romney literally voted twice to convict Donald Trump in impeachment trials. So the idea that, you know, the idea that Mitt Romney, let's put it this way, the 2008 and 2012 Republican presidential candidates are no longer welcome in the modern Republican party. What does that tell you about which party has shifted completely to the extreme, completely kind of off planet sanity. It is the Republican Party. Which underlines that Democrat and Republican, these aren't real political philosophies. They're just like clubs <laughs> that decide their philosophies along the way. Like it's not real liberalism and conservatism. As, as you know, you point out, you know, they swing on different issues depending on who's the leader. Well, they're very broad church. I mean, look, I have a fundamental problem with the two-party system, James. And I, I as, as, as disappointed as I am in you for not voting in 2020, I get why people are frustrated with the two choices on offer, because they're not often great choices. Uh, I come from the UK where it's kind of a two-and-a-half-party system, which isn't great either. Some of us have pushed for proportional representation in the UK, in the US, ranked choice voting, to try and open up the system. 
have a multi-party system like they do in many European countries and elsewhere, have a lot more choice. AOC uh, said this in an interview, I think last year or the year before. She goes, you know, in another country, Joe Biden and I would not be in the same party. Right. And she's right. That's true. She would be in a socialist or social democratic party. He would be in a liberal or center right, center left, whatever party you want to call it. So I do think we need more choice in politics. I do think it's a problem that it becomes two clubs, two groups. And yet, you know, you look at someone like a, a Kirsten Cinema who just recently quit the Democratic Party. She had no business being in the Democratic Party with the likes of, I don't know, uh, you know, uh, her Senate colleagues like Elizabeth Warren um, or Sherrod Brown. So it, it, you, you do hit the nail on the head when you talk about the fact that the philosophies, I, I wouldn't go as far as say there's no philosophies. Clearly, the Republicans do stand for a few broad things that are very clear. They've doubled down on some of it. I would say, you know, the racism and the rich people and Democrats do stand for certain things. But yeah, within those parties, they're so huge. And the Democratic Party, here's a problem for the Democratic Party, James. It, you know, we all comes, everything comes back to identity politics. The Republican Party is a very white party. They don't have to appeal to many people. They just have to appeal to kind of white evangelicals, really, some rich folks, and they're good to go. The Democratic Party is this huge coalition. It's why, you know, we have this, you know, meme about Dems in disarray. It's always divided. It's always fighting with each other. It's always primarying each other. You have the left. You have minority groups. You have technocratic groups. You have unions. You have big tech. You have all sorts of different factions that fall into this kind of liberal democratic umbrella. It's much harder to unify that group. It's much harder to lead that group. Joe Biden was the candidate, was the compromise candidate in 2020. You saw how many candidates ran for the nomination. I didn't think he'd win. I didn't think he'd win the nomination. I didn't think he'd win the presidency. He defied me twice. Um, so, uh, which is why I'm impressed with him now, despite all the other things. But that's what makes it so difficult for people to have debates on ideology, on policy, because forget Dem v. GOP, it's Dem v. Dem. It's GOP versus GOP. And GOP is basically a policy-free zone right now. It's just a kind of authoritarian cult, uh, leadership personality cult. But you're right. I mean, I wish we had more choice. Yeah. And, you know, again, like, you know, in the spirit of your book, you're in these discussions and let's call them debates or arguments all the time on your show. What's what's a time when you felt outmaneuvered in an argument? I want I want to know when you when you when you started learning these techniques that you describe so well in the book by first losing and having to learn out of necessity? Um, that's a great question. And I think, so just um, in terms of recent months, someone I think is a very good debater who is very good at defending the administration. It's a, it's a big loss to them is Ron Klain, the White House chief of staff who recently quit. He's a lifelong debater. I believe he debated at university, college, high school. And I always enjoyed my bouts with him for two reasons. Number one, he's got a thick skin. He gives as good as he gets. He doesn't kind of run away and say, I'm never coming back on your show because you asked me a mean question, which I respect and admire. And number two, you know, there are moments where he will throw out a curveball at me and say, hold on, Mary, to be fair, we did do this, which you didn't mention. And I'll say, that's true, he's got me there. So there are moments when, and it comes down to two things really, James. I mean, many things, but two things that jump out to me right now. One is the guests who have prepared are very different to the guests who haven't prepared. The people who have a command of the evidence and the data and can, you know, throw back to me, well, you quoted part of that report. You didn't quote the rest of it. I'm like, okay, I'm impressed. That's pretty good. And number two, the people to go back to what we just talked about, storytelling. If the guest has that ability to tell a story, to emotionally connect with my viewers, it doesn't matter how much I bash him. He's won the audience. The audience, he or she has won the audience. They've got them on board. And those guests who know how to play that emotional card, play that card of connection, play that card of I'm on your side, you and I, we're the same, because that's, that's one of your top goals as a public speaker, as someone on TV or radio. It's to have the audience say, yeah, that person gets me and I get them. them me and them, we have something in common. I think those people, very hard to run rings around, very hard to throw a curveball or a zinger or a hardball at. Hear that? It's the call of the Crave. And when the Crave calls, you know what to do. Try the $5 Bacon Bundle, because the only thing better than a White Castle slider is a White Castle slider topped with crispy hickory-smoked bacon. So pick any two of either the Bacon Cheese Slider, 1921 Bacon Cheese Slider, or Chicken Bacon Ranch Slider, and also get a small fry for just $5 with the $5 Bacon Bundle. White Castle. Follow your Crave.
sometimes it takes a different approach to help you unlock your true potential. With Capella University's game-changing FlexPath learning format, you gain relevant skills you can apply to your career right away. Earn your degree from an accredited university and be confident in the quality of your education. Imagine your future differently at capella.edu. Capella University is accredited by the Higher Learning Commission. Learn more at capella.edu slash accreditation. You know, and also the storytelling aspect is interesting because it's so powerful and yet it's not evidence, it's anecdotal. So you always have to be careful. The storytelling is key to, let's say, winning an argument or at least expressing your idea so the other person hears you. And yet it's an anecdote, it's not evidence. Yeah, as I often like to say, the plural of anecdote is not data. <laughs> well, so like, what's an example where, let's say I'm in an argument and I want to do the storytelling because it's so effective. It's 22 times more memorable than otherwise. But of course, I want to be able to prove my point and say, this is what the data says. How would you weave the two together? So uh, I'll give you an example from the book of, or a debate that I did. I did a debate on Saudi Arabia uh, and whether the West should cut ties with the Kingdom of Saudi Arabia uh, for Intelligence Squared, a debate organization in the UK. And I was up against a British member of parliament and an Arab journalist and some others on the other side and I had a Saudi female academic on my side. And I opened my speech that night. And you can go watch it on YouTube and see for yourself whether you think it worked. I, I could have done, this is how many people Saudi Arabia executed last year. This is how brutal the kingdom is. This is, you know, this is how many people they've killed in Yemen. I just opened by talking about a bunch of people, like a lot. I think I talked about at least half a dozen people. I talked about people in prison. I talked about women's rights activists. Not general, I'm talking about specific named people. I talked about Lujain al-Hathrul, who was a women's rights activist who was in prison in Saudi Arabia at the time who had been tortured. I talked about, obviously, Jamal Khashoggi, who I knew personally who was obviously murdered in the consulate in Istanbul. Um, I talked about Rafal Badawi, who is still detained, uh, the blogger who has been whipped and lashed uh, by the Saudi state. And I told their story, just one after another, after another. That's literally how I opened the speech, just one story after another. And I, there, there was pin drop silence in the room because people were just absorbing, before they could even fully absorb one horrific story, there was another story. Now, those are stories. You can say, well, that's not evidence of any. Well, then, then I followed up with all the data. But you know, this is the line I say in the book, the pathos, what Aristotle called pathos, emotion is the vehicle that you use to drive logos forward, right? You want to get your facts, logical arguments across, you first got to get people on board paying attention. You first got to connect with them. We have short attention spans. We don't talk about this enough. I mean, you're doing a nice long interview with me. I hope people are staying for the whole hour to hear all of it. But the data suggests most people tune out of a YouTube video or a Twitter clip or whatever it is, Instagram, they just scroll past. We now have a shorter attention span than a goldfish, seconds long. So how do you get people to stay? Yeah, how do you? Story, emotion, passion, language. So tell me the story of when, has there ever been a point where you've encountered so much hate over your beliefs that it threw you off? Like you really got nervous or de despondent or whatever? So about 15 years ago, I joined a new job at the New Statesman magazine in the, in the UK. And I'd left from a TV company. It was my first public-facing job. I'd been a TV producer behind the scenes. No one knew who I was. And I went to be a columnist. And I went to be a pundit on TV in the UK. And after I joined, it was within the first few weeks. I was still new. I was still on probation and the British job contract. And a bunch of Islamophobes on a horrible right-wing website put out a bunch of clips that they'd found of me years earlier speaking in college to college students uh, where I said some stupid, dumb things, which I've publicly regretted and apologized in the past. And I've written about this and people can read about it. But when that happened, it was like, oh, crap. I look like a complete extremist. I know I'm not an extremist, but if I didn't know me, I might think I'm an extremist. Am I going to lose my job? Am I going to lose everything I've worked for? Am I going to lose my house? What am I going to do? I've got a little kid at home. I remember some of the abuse that I got online at the time. I remember seeing, you know, finding my wife kind of curled up on the couch, crying to me, don't read the comments, don't look online, trying to keep, trying to hide it from my parents. It was a really stressful time where I thought, you know, it's funny because I'm now sitting here talking to you, James, about a book I've written about public speaking. And this is a moment where my own speeches and comments are about to destroy me because I've been loose-lipped, because I've been bombastic, because I've spoken not well enough, not clearly enough, not with enough nuance or caveat, because I've used stupid, offensive phrases in the heat of the moment. 
And how, how old were you when you said the initial words that people were? Oh, I was, I was old. I was in my 20s. I was in my mid to late 20s. It wasn't like I was a kid. It was bad. I mean, I've talked about this. I'm now 43 years old. I look back, uh, some of the stuff I said in horror, but you know, you know, as Oscar Wilde said, experience is the name we give to our mistakes. It's stuff that I've used to grow from. And I look back on that period in the sense of like, I mean, it wasn't, oh my God, I've been caught out because I knew even when I made those comments, I wasn't an extremist. I was just dumb and not uh, eloquent enough. Thinking at the time that what my words and my mouth and my not being considerate enough and what I've said and thought through and deliberate enough could come back and cost me everything was a real was a real moment where I had to take stock and think long and hard about the kind of and I, I talk about it in the book you talk you know there's chapters in the book about preparation about practice I mean you cannot be deliberate enough you can never be prepared enough in my view I cannot overstate how important it is. To prepare, people wing it. I mean, the worst thing you can do is to wing it. Do not wing it. People think, ah, you know, natural born orators, they just get up and just go. No, nobody does that. And I talk in the book about Churchill, MLK, Demosthenes, these people who spent years of their lives, decades, honing and refining their art. And, you know, that was a reminder to me of it can cost you everything. I do a live show um, on Sunday nights. And, you know, my wife always says to me, be careful, you're live. Don't just say something you'll regret later. And she's right. And it's great advice. I'm glad I have her keeping me in check because, you know, we live in a world where um, we have to be careful. Uh, we have to be deliberate. Uh, people can take things out of context. There's a lot of bad faith actors who want to always, I'm, I'm on Fox, Fox News. I don't call it Fox News, but it is called foxnews.com, even though it's not news. I'm on their website like every other week where they've taken some tweet of mine or some monologue of mine and said, MSNBC host angers by saying offensive, whatever nonsense. So nothing I can do about stuff like that. I can't do anything about bad faith actors misinterpreting what I say. What I can do is be responsible for my own words, choose my own words carefully, pick my own battles, and make sure that whatever I say is bulletproof. I have evidence for it, that I can back it up, and that I'm not being gratuitously offensive, that I'm not being dumb uh, or unclear uh, or open to misinterpretations. Those are things I've learned. I had to learn the hard way. Uh, with a great deal of regret and contrition. But, you know, as my father said to me, you know, life is about those mistakes, learning from it, getting up, and they all come in, they're all invaluable in the end. They're all what make us who we are. Well, you know, and and this is this is somewhat related. When do you think in an argument it's okay to use what's called an ad hominem attack? It's, meaning I might question your, uh, we might be arguing about whatever issue, and I might bring up this incident that happened to you yeah. question your credibility. So I'm not actually arguing yeah. anymore about the issue. I'm yeah. calling into question your credibility for, for the audience to see that maybe you're not a, a reliable narrator. So that's when you should do it, if that's what you believe. I say in the book, the chapter on ad hominem attacks is called Play the Man, Not Just the Ball, because we're taught from high school debate onwards, play the ball, not the man. It's wrong to go after the arguer, just go after the argument. If you go after the person, that's a logical fallacy, because whether the person is credible or not doesn't affect the premises and the conclusion. That's all great in theory. That's all great in a logic class in university. In the real world, in the world of rhetoric, it all matters. And I identify three forms of ad hominem in the book. There are many forms, but three main ones. The abusive ad hominem, which kind of Donald Trump has mastered, the circumstantial ad hominem, and the tu quo quo. And I say they are relevant at certain times in real world argumentation. For example, the abusive ad hominem, if somebody is a liar, right? If you are debating Donald Trump on the presidential debate stage in 2024, you should point out to the audience that this man can't be trusted because he has a long history of lying. He's lied before, why wouldn't you think he's lying tonight? Now, you might say that's ad hominem. You're not dealing with Trump's tax policies. But no, it is incumbent upon you to remind the audience that he is not to be trusted. That is a relevant ad hominem and justifiable. Circumstantial ad hominem. You're arguing with someone who says climate change isn't real, but they are paid by the fossil fuel industry. They haven't mentioned that to the audience. Ah, I think you should mention it to the audience. Now, you might say that's got nothing to do with the science on greenhouse gases. But it is to do with whether we should trust this person. It is to do with whether that person's arguments deserves extra scrutiny because of their own kind of self-interest. And then the third ad hominem that I talk about, the two quo quay, which is the hypocrisy argument. This idea of you too, that's what it literally means. People say, oh, you shouldn't bring that up. If a, if a Republican politician is arguing against abortion, you shouldn't point out that they may have paid a secret mistress to have an abortion. My point is, yeah, it might be awkward. It might feel a little bit icky, but you know what? It is relevant. I'll tell you why it's relevant, because if somebody is arguing a position which they cannot adhere to themselves, then it becomes relevant to say, why are you arguing a position that you cannot adhere to yourselves? Maybe the position isn't a good or sustainable one. 
And so in the, in all these cases, what does it mean to win an argument? Like, have you ever had someone on your show or even just a friend over at your house and you're debating some issue and finally the person says, you know what? You're right. I'm wrong. <laughs> like, has that ever happened? That happens to me all the time, James. Of course it happens. That's what I'm known for. Um, it's a great question. How do you define victory, especially in the current polarized era where you can have all the facts and receipts and one group will go away to its cocoon and be told by their Fox primetime hosts, doesn't matter, up is down, black is white, hot is cold. It's a real problem in the kind of post-truth alternative fact world that some in the GOP want to give us or live in. Um, I think, you know, I think victory, to borrow a line from the Supreme Court's definition of porn, you know it when you see it. Right. Victory is when, as you say, the other person has conceded or the audience has so overwhelmingly supported you. Because a lot of the arguments in the book, I make the point that it's about the audience. Right. These are not just arguments behind closed doors, you and your spouse or you and your uncle at the Thanksgiving table. This might be an argument on TV. This might be an argument you and I have on a podcast. This might be something in the boardroom with colleagues. This might be something in a court with a jury. There's an audience that you're really trying to convince, not the other person. They're not the person you're trying to convince. They might be the person you're trying to rhetorically beat up, but it's the audience you're trying to persuade, the neutral third party, to use your neutral phrase. So that is when you know there's victory. I mean, I've done formal debates where people will literally vote like to say who's won, and I've won those debates, and I get very happy, and I have my dopamine hit. Uh, there's jury trials for lawyers. Lawyers know when they've won. There's a very easy way. The jury, has they voted with the model, has the judge uh, uh, adjudicated in their favor. Um, if you're trying to do a business deal, I talk a lot about, you know, this book is for negotiations uh, for business people. Uh, you know you've won if you've secured the deal you wanted on the terms you wanted in the way that you wanted. So I do believe there are ways of defining and knowing victory. It's becoming harder and harder in our current environment, I admit. Um, but victory can be there. And people say, well, why do you want to have victory? A lot of, I've had a lot of snark from some folks on social media. Why would you want to win? You should want to lose and learn from what you lost. And I'm saying that's fine. But number one, sometimes you have to win. Right? Sometimes you're in a situation where you, where you need to get this job. You don't want to lose in that job interview. You need the damn job to pay your bills. And number two, I refuse to believe there's any human being that hasn't had to or wanted to believe win an argument at some point in their life. And I'm saying to people, you don't have to engage in or win every argument to use the cover. But if you do, here are the skills that will help you do that. Right, and I think people, negotiation is one of those things that everybody sort of thinks they're good at it and very few people are. It's sort of like, Everybody I talk to seems to be an amazing judge of character. I rarely meet someone who says, you know, I'm a really poor judge of character. Yeah. Or, you know, it's, it's that statistic, uh, nine out of 10 people think they're above average driver, which is impossible. So people don't know. There's a lot of Dunning-Kruger around. Yeah, exactly. So a lot of people don't really know the skill sets that you outlined so well in this book. And I'm going to say the name of it again. Win every argument, the art of debating, persuading, and public speaking. and Mehdi, I know you're you're very busy. You're on you're on book tour. You're on podcast book tour, so you have other things going on. So I really appreciate the time you spent coming on the show. I feel like I could talk to you all day. I really want to talk politics to you all day. Maybe we'll do another podcast at some point. Let's do another one. Let's do another one. We just talk politics, and I'll expose how non-neutral you are in that discussion. I will tell you. There's one thing I wanted to. I feel the urge <laughs> to on. tell you, which Go is on. my favorite moment in recent presidential history is. 2008, during the election, uh, you know, we had this massive economic collapse happening and Congress did not pass the initial stimulus package. So Bush and the two candidates, Obama and McCain, gathered at the Oval Office with all the congressional leaders and McCain was afraid to piss off the far right in his party. So he was kind of quiet and did not convince Congress to pass the stimulus package. And Obama and Bush worked hand in hand convincing the House leadership that they needed to do this. And I thought that was, I thought that's how life should be. That's how politics should be. Well, just as a bookend to go with that, flash forward 12 years, you have the pandemic, the Democrats vote en masse for the CARES Act in 2020, for the Trump Act, for the initial pandemic relief package, without which you know this country would have been even worse off. And yet when Biden becomes president and pushes the American Rescue Plan, how many Republicans voted for that? Oh, yeah. Zero, zero Republicans voted for that just 18 months later. Yeah. So, I mean, the world's changed. And my fear is, is that the U.S. is the trust we've spent centuries building up among the world is even more quickly dissolving than, than I agree people with you. have. Of. So, 
so yeah, maybe one day we'll you could come on and we'll we'll talk politics. I'd love I love to. the topic. I'd love so, to. Thanks for having me, James. Appreciate it. Thanks, Mehdi. Talk to you soon. Thanks. Bye bye. Life is a highway, and on it there will be many chicken sandwiches. But there's only one McCrispy, so go ahead and hit the turn signal if you know about this juicy gem of a detour. At Capella University, you'll get support from people who care about your success. From before you enroll to after you graduate, pursue your goals knowing help is available when you need it. Imagine your future differently at capella.edu.